Hello, I'm Gary Burgess and welcome to the ME Show, supported as always by the ME Association. In this series, I'm meeting experts working to treat those with ME or research its cause to find a cure. And in this episode, I speak to Dr. Nina Muirhead. She's a doctor who specialises in oncology and dermatology, but who herself has ME and now devotes so much of her time raising awareness of ME, particularly among her medical peers. I hope you find this chat as interesting as I certainly did. Dr. Nina Muirhead, welcome to the ME Show. How are you today? Oh, I'm having a good day. Um, Obviously, you can't always tell what it's going to be like, but today is a good one. So I'm really keen to get chatting to you and talking about my experiences. I am delighted. I'm glad the stars have aligned and we've got both of us on a good day. That should that should ease things tremendously. Be, before we talk about you and ME, I just want to talk about you professionally, first of all, for people who don't know who you are. Uh, I, I didn't know you until someone shared with me a, a video when you were giving a presentation about yourself and your own ME experience and journey. But prior to that, your, your career is in medicine. That's correct. So I'm a dermatology surgeon, which means that my day job is cutting out skin cancers. And I've worked for the NHS since 1999. I trained at Oxford. I then uh, worked in various London hospitals, training in surgery, plastic surgery to begin with. And then in 2014, I changed across to dermatology. And um, I didn't really get taught about any during any of that time uh, during my training. So when I became ill in 2016, it was a shock that this was an illness that I didn't even know about. Am I right in saying not only an illness you didn't really know about, but perhaps an illness you, you didn't even believe in back in the day? Correct. Um, so in sort of the back of my mind, I had some sense that it was often after a glandular fever virus and that people would end up very ill in bed for several months. And I truly believed that perhaps there was an element of deconditioning or perhaps a bit of depression. But my experience personally was the complete opposite. I'd become ill in the September 2016 with a series of viral infections. I had chest infections, sore throats, diarrhea and vomiting, sinusitis, high temperatures, and I'd continued working because I deal with skin cancer patients. I felt that I couldn't keep taking sick leave. I just carried on working the whole time and I even carried on exercising. I went to Pilates classes, I went to circuits, but the entire time I just became sicker and sicker and less able to manage even basic things. So I couldn't think straight, I was having trouble uh, planning meals, I was driving around the car park at work trying to get as close as possible, I was using disabled toilets, starting to choose different clothes to make them easier to get on and off. So I was constantly adjusting to try and um, continue as normal whilst being extremely ill until I finally collapsed in April 2017. 
This element of your story, which is what came across on on the video I watched, and I'll put the link to it in the show notes, uh, is the bit where it felt like your life and my life were mirroring each other. I, I look back now and realize the the madness of it. But but it's yes. it's that lifelong instinct, isn't it? Where you're ill, you fight through it. Oh, exercise will will get you better. Pull yourself together. You're letting other people down. It's all the very worst things you could be doing. For for yourself absolutely I mean I was really pushing myself um, one of the first things that rang alarm bells with the GP is that I said I took three or four hours to empty the dishwasher and she said if you're that ill you shouldn't be emptying the dishwasher <laughs> but in my head I was still driving myself to try and keep things going as normal in the house and there is an expectation that that will then fix itself over time. But just just take us on over that period of time to, to when your body finally went pop and, and, and you finally realised, no, you're not going to win this battle. Well, I did try to re- return to work a couple of times after just taking two weeks off initially and then a further week. Um, and by, on the second occasion, I did a half-day operating list in the morning and I started trying to walk down the corridor to leave the hospital and the walls and floor were moving. It was like I was on the Titanic and I was literally close to collapsing um, and I thought this isn't safe I can't actually continue as a doctor practicing if I can't walk up the corridor without the whole thing swimming and when I finally did realize that I had to rest it was such a shock as to how low my capacity was looking back I couldn't even read very well at that point I'd stopped watching television because that was too much of a sensory overload. I'd really cut all of my social activities and my whole life was imploding. And in the end, I spent four to six months mainly in bed. And for four of those months, I was nursed by my parents. Goodness. It's it's a time in your life when you also realise which are the people who matter. So knowing there are some good people around you is absolutely vital at that point it it was vital and it was also heartbreaking for me because my young children were then aged two and four and a half five and I couldn't actually spend more than a few minutes with them I couldn't pick them up because my arms were in agony I couldn't listen to them talking to me. I couldn't concentrate on what they were saying. And so I had to live apart from them to enable me to recover enough capacity to spend even just 10 minutes a day with my own children, which is horrendous for a mother. Oh my, I, I, I cannot even imagine that. And, and whilst all that is going on, whilst your professional life is on hold, your family life is suddenly distorted and you are going through this living hell for want of a better description at that point you you don't have a label for it either no so I delayed my own diagnosis for a good three months having had the positive glandular fever result in the April 2017 which I'd clearly had for probably about nine months before that um, I then looked on the nice website about 
ME, chronic fatigue syndrome. And I read that this was an illness that would get better with cognitive behavioural therapy and graded exercise. And I thought, well, that's not what I've got because <laughs> I'm mentally extremely strong and exercise makes me worse. So I completely um, disregarded that diagnosis for myself for a good three months. I thought maybe I had a brain tumour or multiple sclerosis. Do you know, <laughs> it, it, it feels like parallel lives. I, I did the same, that sort of playing Dr. Google, stumbling across ME and reading it and thinking, yeah, 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 that's me, that's me. But then you go through the guidelines and you're like, oh, no, it's not me because this, uh, this, this exercise thing is really not the right idea. And, and then stumbling across MS as the next best fit. So, so when eventually did, did you get to finding out it was ME? So I have a lot of credit uh, to hand to my fantastic GP, who in July 2017, so nearly a year after I'd started getting ill, uh, listened to me. I had to write everything down because I couldn't even remember things once I was in the consultation. My heart rate was 140. I couldn't think straight. I couldn't even make eye contact. But I'd written down things like... Um, I can't read, I can't concentrate, <laughs> um, I've got these sore throats every, every week, I've got sinusitis, I've got muscle pain, and she said, I know what you've got within about five minutes. Is, is that point a relief or is that point a heartbreak that you've been through all of this to get something that only took five minutes in the end? Um, I think it was a relief okay. and any doctor who has put it, been putting off diagnosing a patient should just go ahead and diagnose them and not worry that they're going to be upset because it's a horrible diagnosis to have but at least it's a start of being able to be kind to yourself and give yourself a break and rest and know that there's nothing mental causing the lack of energy in your cells. What happened since then? Because between then and now, I mean, there's a, there's a whole world of professional change which we'll come on to. But in terms of Nina rather than Dr. Nina, just, just Nina looking after herself and doing the right things, what, what did you do? Okay, well, <clears throat> I spent most of 2017 in bed. And I literally pulled back everything. I pulled back all my social engagements. I stopped work completely. I didn't do any meal preparation or cooking or housework or, or anything. So I had a total break. And every time I started to try and take on little things, I remember trying to order a few things online for Christmas in 2017-18, and even that was absolutely exhausting. So I, I had to find my baseline and really draw everything back until I could function without head-crushing headaches, neck pain, sore throats, total fog. Yeah. And as soon as I got a little bit of clarity and the fog began to clear... I'd be very careful about what I took on. And I, I made a lot of mistakes in the early days. I tried to do a lot too quickly 
or if I'd have a good day, I'd do more mentally and more physically, <laughs> which would be a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've learned to sort of spread it out throughout the week. And it, it took me another nine months to work up from going into work for half an hour a week to six hours a week. And again, that was in fits and starts, and I really had to pace myself. But by the summer of 2018, I was able to say, yes, I'm ready to take on just a couple of afternoons a week. And I split them between a Tuesday and a Friday afternoon. So I've got a couple of days to rest in between. And now I am managing that. And I'm starting to get a little bit more comfortable with managing that. And are you able to resist the temptation to think, I've cracked this, I'm the hero of the world, I can do more? Um, <laughs> no, I still want to be the hero of the world. I still want to do more. Um, uh, it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah, I have to, I have to constantly be on my own case. Yeah. to rest and I've had to employ family members to tell me when my eyes are drooping and I'm not making sense anymore to literally bully me back into the bed or go and have a Epsom salt bath or stare out of the window and just reboot your battery. They sound like a, a good bunch uh, of people. Uh, let's move back on to your professional life now. Uh, it sounds to me that from from working on, on skin cancer cases, you're, you're now becoming an evangelist for ME awareness raising. Tell me about the work you're doing. So as, aside from the um, dermatology work that I was doing, I already had a great interest in education. So I have a master's degree in education. I've co-written a couple of medical textbooks I'm a lecturer at the Royal Society of Medicine and have done various anatomy study weekends for medical students. So when I started coming around from my coma-like state, which I was in for several months when I was very severe, I started reading about ME and I could really tell there was a huge gap in knowledge between what the patient understands and what the general doctor, particularly my generation of doctors, understand. Some doctors don't even know about it. Others are completely misled and think it's there's a psychological component to perpetuating the illness, which I genuinely don't believe. Mm -hmm. So I think, I thought to myself, what can I do? I can use my skills in education to try and bridge this gap. And that's that's the start of my journey. And since then, you've now worked up not just one, not just two, but you're currently working on three different projects to to, to spread the, the, the good news of this work. Correct. So I started to think, how, how can we find out what's going on now so we can implement suggestions for change in the future? One of the things I'm looking at is nationwide what medical schools are teaching on this topic. Obviously, it's been 18 years since I attended medical school and a lot has changed since then. And I certainly know that the delivery of subjects like fibromyalgia have improved considerably. 
so I want to know what is being taught right now, UK-wide, by medical schools about ME and what the variety is like, whether students meet patients with this condition. It's very common in the UK. It's more common than HIV and multiple sclerosis combined, and they do feature on the syllabus. So I want to see how ME features on the syllabus and how that is different around the country and maybe even offer universities UK-wide some learning materials, either videos or e-learning, so they can standardise it more to the rapidly changing biomedical information on this topic which is emerging through research. It's worth, pardon my ignorance here, I guess it's just worth me clarifying, whereas we have standard guidelines on patient care, does that imply there isn't a standard teaching curriculum of medical students up and down the country when it comes to something like ME? Yes, Gary, you're absolutely right. Um, each medical school owns their own sort of what they teach and often employ very senior academic lecturers who who steer that teaching and and they can often be quite protective of what they teach and yes it's very individualized to each university very individualized sounds like a beautiful euphemism for some of it can be wildly wrong because it's some mad old professor sticking their ways based on what they learnt in 1955. Um, I, I wouldn't be so critical oh, of good, our good. <laughs> uh, system. <laughs> um, no, I think the medical schools do a fantastic job and they've doubled in numbers since I applied to medical school. And the new universities are really sort of tapping into quite a lot of modern evidence-based. But I think with ME, we are in a definitely a different situation. It's almost like an emergency situation where what a certain generation of doctors have been taught is actually totally wrong and now the science is emerging to refute that the patients have been very constant with their story and I think that doctors and uh, teachers everywhere need to listen to that. And how do you turn around your work? It sounds like a lot of your work is, is basically gathering the information. So learning about the impact of ME on family members, learning about the role of GPs, learning about what's happening in medical schools. Once you've learned that, how do you pump out, I don't know, conclusions, recommendations, findings to, to affect change? Well, that's exactly why we're doing the information gathering. We can't make suggestions without knowing what's going on already. And as soon as we start identifying where the biggest gaps are, then we can start to make suggestions as to how to fill them. We can write e-learning modules. We can um, even just put links to updated literature and research onto GP notebook guides, for example. There are lots of practical ways in which we can start filling the gap in the knowledge. It, it strikes me this is an awful thing to say, but I, I feel grateful you got ME. I mean, it, it, it sounds awful that it takes someone in the medical world to be struck down by this, to then have the wherewithal to, to change the world around them. 
Um, the feeling is mutual. You're <laughs> you're doing your your role, spreading the word, and I think I think that's the key. Unless you've had it, you really don't have a clue as to how awful you can feel and how it's almost like having concussion, and you have no control over your energy levels. You can't even think straight at times, yeah. and it's only by people who've experienced it, trying to educate people, spread the word, improve the um, general public awareness. Um, that's how we're going to get there. How? So we're, we all, we all, we're all playing a role. And, and yes, it, it does help me accept my own illness. It's been horrendous. Um, but if I feel I can make a difference because of it, then makes me less miserable <laughs> well that's that's lovely it all feels very perverse but that is lovely and um, what's uh, what what's your sense of where we're at now i mean i've, I've asked a number of people on this podcast series how hopeful are you that uh, either understanding is improving or we're nearing that breakthrough as to what the hell this thing is what, what's your feeling right now nina i'm really hopeful um i may be wildly optimistic but I genuinely think that in the next two to five years, we're going to get some really big breakthroughs as to the understanding, possibly biomarkers and possibly treatments. I like your optimism. I, I will hold you to that. I'll phone you up in two years and see how we've got on. Nina, listen, <laughs> I really appreciate you spending the time with me today. Thanks for joining me on the ME show. Oh, thank you so much, Gary. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, you know, be kind to yourself and tell all your listeners to be kind to themselves because it is a tough illness and horrendous for everyone involved, including their families. Um, but if we can improve awareness, then let's carry on. There you are, a plea for kindness from the inspirational Dr. Nina Muirhead. And you'll find links to her work, including that video of one of her presentations that I mentioned in the show notes that come with this podcast. If you're listening in iTunes, as ever, please rate and review. It really does make a difference. It helps boost our visibility and hopefully means more people will find this podcast. And thank you to you if you've been sharing links across social media and with your friends and networks. It all makes a difference. For now, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>